0: All Bark, No Dice, the fundamentals Tabletop Podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Jen Kretschmer, who's a... Well, she's done a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> I said that about everybody because it seems like people wear a lot of hats, but I don't know I've met a lot of people... I don't know I've met someone in tabletop who wears quite as many hats as Jen does. Uh, you might know her from shows like Myth and Fables, Silver and Steel as well as all kinds of guest appearances, uh, and she's just done a lot of things. Uh, So, welcome to come on Mm -hmm. the show, Jen.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: The big discussion, the thing I think that people are probably asking you about a lot when it comes to Tabletop is your upcoming contribution to Candlekeep Mysteries, the new Dungeons & Dragons book coming out in March. yes.
1: I'm and, so excited. <laughs> yes,
0: and I am excited to talk about that with you. Uh, we'll definitely get to that. But I always, I want to talk a little bit about um, your work that kind of led you up to the work that you're doing officially with D&D. Because you've been playing for, you know as far as I can tell, you've been doing D&D and tabletop for a long time.
1: I have, yeah. It's almost 20 years now.
0: And, you know, you've been doing it as a player, as a DM, as a performer. And I know yep. it's kind of basic, but what got you into
1: D&D? So I had sort of a false start with D&D. Uh, when I was around, I think, about 14, um, my brother had started playing. He had asked for the core books as, I think, a birthday present, Um and was trying to explain them to me. I was a huge nerd already. I loved <laughs> fantasy books. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was trying to get him to build, uh, when he was talking about character creation, I was trying to get him to build, as, as many of us do, um, a character from one of the books I was reading, I think. And it didn't translate naturally, <laughs> because that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> And he was trying his best to kind of modify things, but and I had had friends at camp who played as well, and mm-hmm. I think I'd gone in to try and learn one day there, but it, it just never quite clicked for me. I didn't quite understand at that point what was going on, and it the, the books were very dense. It was second edition. Um, oh, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, and uh, I just wasn't, I wasn't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but a few years later. During my senior year of high school, I had a, a group of friends who decided they were going to get d and D game going. Um, my closest friends at that time, and one of a couple of them, I think, had had played before. Um, and I said, "Sure, why not?" And and at that point, I actually really got into it. We we started playing, and I I started understanding what was going on and read through the rules and. It, Within you know weeks, I was I was madly in love, um, <laughs> uh, wildly in love with this game, um, and and that that campaign went on for I think eight years. That that group kept playing, um, or that I played with that group, um, and I I DM'd for the first time with that group uh, a couple years later, um, and it just went from there. And and we played through second edition, third, three point five, and then uh, right at the very beginning of fourth. Uh, I think we actually got a little bit into fourth as well. So several editions through that campaign as well.
0: Uh, do you do you like fourth edition?
1: Have you played much Are of it? It's very mixed. I, oh, I, I've played a whole lot of fourth. Oh, okay. um, I have mixed feelings on it. I've DM'd fourth as well. I mean, I've DM'd in all of those editions as well. Um, and then clearly fifth. Um, fifth is what I have played the most of, but that is mostly due to the exponential increase in how much Dungeons and Dragons I, <laughs> I play and I'm involved yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, 4th, I think there's a lot that's really valuable. I think the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 in 4th edition is some of the best advice in terms of structuring narrative and storytelling and um, table management out there. Um, I think that that material, I think all of James Wyatt's work in 4th edition is, is extraordinary. Um, I think there's some really great setting material in 4th. Um, Matt Colville has convinced me of of. The worth of minions. Um, And now I use them all the time in fifth, which I hadn't thought to translate them over uh, in that way. Um, Originally, I would just use descriptive swaths of enemies that that just, if you cast a spell their way, it would wipe them out if it was an AoE spell, Um, which essentially was minions. But hearing Matt talk about minions, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's actually a really, that's a valid point. Um, But mechanically... I felt very hamstrung in terms of my narrative uh, ability there. I didn't feel like I had a lot of flexibility with playing a character. I felt like I was, because combat took so long and because it was so, the power cards were so strongly emphasized. Um, it really, and, and the, the leaning into the MMO kind of feel to it. Um, there's value in that, uh, but for me i I like some of the fourth story. I thought points of light was really great um, but but the actual mechanics for me in general didn't really connect. I do, however, miss the formatting. I loved that formatting where you had the monsters right there and combat setups and interesting tactical moves that all that all I think is such valuable stuff that makes it easier for people to understand how to dm and tactically approach combats and terrain in an interesting way
0: yeah it's it's having it's not quite having a renaissance i think because of those issues that i think are still there I, but I, I mean as someone who was a oh i don't like this and switched to switch to pathfinder for that ge- for that generation of DD i'm seeing it a little bit i've, I've been reading more about it uh people are Going back and looking at it and picking out, oh, well, maybe we were a little bit too judgmental or even people who hadn't played it before who'd only heard like horror stories are going back and looking at it and seeing those things that are interesting that have had really strong effects on, on, you know, there's stuff in it that have affected all kinds of games, you know, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, 5E. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all taken things from 4th Edition that really work. Yeah,
1: skill checks. Yeah. Um, skill checks are the, the greatest tool. <laughs> you can use them for so many things. Yeah, um, it, yeah, and I, I think every edition that I've played has had really valuable elements. Um, I think 2nd, certainly conceptually, has been the most influential for me. And, and I think conceptually, 2nd is closest to 5th um in a lot of ways um in the idea of maps and minis being a playstyle choice but not at all a, a playstyle requirement um in, in terms of sort of what the overall goals of the game are on a on a meta level on a table and playstyle and interaction level um I think it's, it's, yeah. I I have a very soft spot. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A very soft spot in my heart for second edition. Mm -hmm. I also, there are pieces of lore in second that I just adore. Complete Book of the Elves is my my favorite book ever put out because that book, when I read that for the first time, just, it opened up the universe to me um, in terms of what, what D&D was trying to do because I didn't know anything beyond the core books existed for the first few years I played um especially modules like I had no idea they existed um so that was a a a startling revelation but uh (laughs) but really the splat books that got into the nuance of the classes and the races was Mm -hmm. uh, was so fantastic to me
0: yeah uh. those are so much fun and I, you know in in second edition third edition um they really had a lot of uh really wild um official stuff that was in mm-hmm. those flat books um that i think now that we're fifth edition had some longevity to it we're finally getting to some of that fun weird deep D D lore
1: mm-hmm. well and second edition too was one of the things i really love is is that the adventures were really manageable, which is so interesting that Candlekeep is kind of, is that, mm-hmm. um, but that they were, they were not 300 page books. They were, you know, 28 page adventures, <laughs> um, that you could then stack together to form a campaign, but the shorter pieces let you, I think it, it let DMs work through them a little more, cleanly because it wasn't this epic undertaking to go oh I'm going to run a 13 level campaign or or a a 15 level campaign and I have to go read this 300 page book several times over and really plan for months in advance to be able to do this thing it was really you could pick up and go um and that's that's a wonderful thing Um, I love the longer adventures too, because you really get to run around a world and play. Um, but it's a very different prep experience and a very different experience. There's a, f- a different kind of flexibility there because you, you can really change what path you're on in the narrative um, very easily and very cleanly. If, if you want to send your players to a completely different place, it's, it's an easy pivot. Um, whereas If you are in, um, Avernus, you're not going anywhere else anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah. So, but, you know, but it's still a ton of fun.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, you've, you know, you're, um, a lot of your work that you've been doing, um, in D&D is as a sort of on-screen performer. Um. And really, I I think, and D and D does have a performative aspect, even if you're not on screen. And you've been performing for, well, a, a, you know, longer than you've been my playing, whole, your life, whole life. You come yeah. from a family of performers. And, I do. Um, I was I was curious if if there's a if there's a draw there to D and D, from the performative side, you know, not just the geeky fantasy side, but also the yeah. part of you that's a performer.
1: I I think so. Absolutely. Um, I think tabletop in general for me has been the best acting class I've ever taken. It's the mm. best improv class I've ever taken. It's the best writing class I've ever taken. Yeah. It's the best people management, creative problem solving, um, lessons that i've ever learned um i know that there are a bunch of showrunners working in hollywood who are who are huge longtime D geeks mm-hmm. and john rogers has talked about this that, that the best showrunner training you can get is to dm because I- you're learning how to navigate a table of people and um, with different needs and wants and approaches, and you're trying to f- find a way to make sure everyone feels heard and everyone gets to be active and everyone gets to feel cool um, while still being the one who has the final say in whether things happen or not. Um, and I think that, that, that that's been the case for a lot of a lot of my, my friends who are writers. In Hollywood, so I think it's not specifically limited to the performance thing, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the, the the camp I talked about that I uh, had D D was a was a theater <laughs> camp, was a performing arts camp, um, and and of course because you get to try on all of these different characters, you get to imagine what it's like to be, you know, a, a, a dwarf who grew up. Uh, you know, in a family that has been guarding a <laughs> temple yeah. because of uh, an ancient prophecy, wh- whatever it is, and 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 that you are the first in your family to strike out on your own, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever story you want to tell. Uh, of course, that's that's it's it's a wonderful opportunity to do that and to improv and to yes and and play a character for a longer time than than you usually do. As as an actor in any other format, yeah. I mean,
0: yeah, and that's something that I, I as I you know talked to Amy Vorpal about um the improv mm-hmm. in D anD D and the acting aspects of it, and it's been interesting watching you know because wizards being based out of the Pacific Northwest and mm-hmm. and the, it's a very spread out hobby, but it really has, especially the streaming side of things, it kind of has become a LA has kind of become a bit of a hub for a lot of streaming. Um, it's a bit more democratic yeah. It's a bit more democratic than other forms of entertainment, but it, I don't know if that might just be the critical role thing, but it seems like that attraction of people in all parts of the entertainment industry um, has really coalesced in, in LA. I
1: mean, I th- so I think, I think there are a few things at play in that. Um, I think a lot of us were playing together before streaming got popular. Yeah. Um, there were these groups. I, I've been. I have a group that's been a, a group that's writers, um, and uh, there are a couple of showrunners, and it, it's it's been an off and on group for for the last close to a decade wow. now. Um, and and there have been a. a f- I know that there are several of those. Um. And same with actors, you know, but that's, I think that's just by the nature of living in LA, often that's who you get to know and um, to find people to have this common hobby with and you know that when you're with other writers or performers, you have people who are thinking about the story and who are thinking about the characters, and who are going to want to tell a a, a similar kind of flavor of story, they're going to want to tell uh, a story that that has real stakes and that has an emotional through line, um, you know, that characters have an arc and grow and it's not just getting XP or loot. It's what happens when this, What is does what is this experience do to someone? How does this change a character? Um, because, you know, I've played in groups where when you connected to a character and you felt strongly about it, you, you got really shamed for it. Uh, it was like, no, this is just a game. It's, uh, it's basically just writing down numbers and you're going, no, it's that it, the numbers are representing a person. This is well, that's what, that's what's special about this is it, it's not, they're not just you ones and zeros. Um, they are, they're an imaginary, but living, breathing person in a world. Um, Who's taking on the weight of saving that world, often, or trying to destroy it, depending who you're playing. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, Or both. You never know. Um, It's all about your point of view. But I think, yeah. So I think I think that that's an element of it. I think it's the fact that we know how to make a show that we understand story structure. So you look at something like Monsters and Fables, and we specifically aimed toward a more television episode-like format. Um we we knew where we were going with um you know on the production side we knew where we were going with the story because we knew we were leading up to descent into avernus. Um so we knew we had to get to a certain place. How we got there was was open, but we knew we had to get there. And we wanted each episode to feel like it had an internal arc and that there was a beginning, middle, and end. Um and that there was character growth and development. Um, and so those are all things I was taking into account as we were creating the show and editing the show and filming the show, all of those things. Um, you know, and, and also the rest of that that incredible team on that that project. Um, but yeah, so I think we know how to make the stuff. We are all passionate about story and storytelling. Um, so I, I think it's less... About the location. I, I think in New York, you'd have a similar type of situation, but like if, if you play D with your coworkers and you live in LA, there's a high likelihood that playing with your coworkers is playing with people who make TV or movies. Um, and, and you know, crit roll That's how it started. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's exactly, it's not, it wasn't, Cast it wasn't, you know that that was that was a completely authentic, and and I genuinely try r- really hard. And we were talking about this before we we started recording. I try really hard not to compare things to Critical Role <laughs> because I think everyone does, um, and I think it's it's actually uh, I, I think Critical Role is its, it's own entity. It, they what they had was absolutely lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. I think even they aren't quite sure why (laughs) the things that have happened with it happened with it. Um, It just timed out with right place, right time, right people, right project, um, right medium. But I mean, I'll say I was pitching an actual play D&D show for well over a decade now. I was going to try and get people to make a a TV show with recognizable people playing D and D this is, you know, I sort of had, after I was already pitching it, someone said, Hey, have you heard about the show critical role? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I had been pitching a celebrity D and D show to, to executives Mm -hmm. and, the response was, no one would want to watch that, <laughs> and 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 so I think there's and then after after the Kickstarter, all of a sudden, every meeting I was having, I would talk about D D stuff. They were like, yeah, I like these higher order ideas you have, but ha- how about like Dungeons and Dragons with celebrities? And I'm going, yeah, you're like five years too <laughs> late on this, my friends. Um, we have to do more interesting, complex ideas around these things now. But I think when people compare anything to critical role, you are, you can't because it's its, it's own entity, it's, it's its own company, it's its own network, it's its own um, unique set of circumstances and people. Um, there is no one else who's doing anything, you know, I, I guess Adventure Zone kind of is in a similar-ish position but not not quite the same um but you know they're coming coming through with a tv show too so um but but when streamers compare themselves to that i think it's a deeply unfair i think it's an injustice to the streamers themselves that to put that on on their own
0: um i was gonna say it's the same principle as I, I, do you see dms who worry because they're they their model for ooh what kind of dms could i be and their model is oh i have to be as good as matt mercer <laughs> it's the same kind of it's you're gonna run yeah. into <laughs> you're not gonna you're gonna you'll get Matt you maybe but it's tough
1: <laughs> for years i've seen this in entertainment whether it's with writers or with actors um or directors you know any sort of creative will have this idea of i i want to be like this person Mm -hmm. and they will try and imitate that person or they'll try and make themselves look like that person and talk like that person and try and shove themselves into a type or they'll they'll write in the style of that person um and the reality is that niche is filled we have that person (laughs) yeah um what we need is you to be you and do the things that that are unique to what your skill set is and yes you can absolutely learn so much from people like that um or or Chris Perkins or or whomever you know or you um, Deborah Wall <laughs> oh, thank you that's <laughs> wow um but but you know it's what are the things you're passionate about what stories do you want to tell what are the things that grab you and, and get you excited and make you Want to tell that story, um, that's what we need from people, yeah. How can you tell it differently than anybody else can? What's creative and unique about your style? Um, so that that I think is is something I wish people really recognized. But I, I think, you know, yes, it's happening a lot in LA because a lot of us are local and already had games and went, eh, it's not that hard to like take our friends who we're already playing with and get us in the same spot where we'd be playing anyway and start recording it. Or, um, you know, we know someone who has a studio, maybe we can go play there, wh- whatever it is. Um, but I think in New York, I'm sure there's stuff like there, there, there would be theater people doing D D. It's a huge thing. Yeah, yeah musical um, people and yeah. Well, Alex Boniello. Yeah, is is in that zone. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you, we, you've mentioned it a few times, and um, it, I, um, I, it, it definitely sounds like something that you're you're passionate about. Is that the stories within Dungeons and Dragons, then tabletop? Um, you know, I don't want to limit you play you play many other games i don't want to just limit to They um but what kinds of st- which is important yeah
1: because even if you want to exclusively focus on DD um for me some playing 10 candles changed my life as a dm forever you know mm-hmm. I, I think i think playing indie games is so important it, you just become aware of of things you didn't know or um, learning new tools, things like using the Blades in the Dark hack for D&D, where if you're going to do a heist, you can have flashback mechanics instead of waiting for five sessions while your players try and plan a dungeon delve into, or a heist into a place they have no idea about, where the first obstacle they'll have, the whole plan, you know, falls apart. Um.
0: Um, and but no matter what system you're working with and this could be whether you're a, a player or a DM and f- what kind of stories do you like to tell or what stories would do you want to tell in Dungeons and Dragons or in in your tabletop
1: work Yeah so I was a, a literature major <laughs> so hey, um Me too <laughs> Nice um, I am fascinated with kind of the there are only seven stories ideas so i i love um mythology um i love fairy tales uh i think these are kind of the basis for almost every story we tell as in uh, specifically in in western culture but i think a lot of non-western um stories also uh land particularly when you're talking about like liminal phase storytelling, um, in these categories. Um, so I'm very interested in, in those ideas, um, of, I- in terms of worlds, uh, what, what draws us to those kinds of stories in general? Um, why do we keep telling those? Why are we, why do they keep popping up culturally, you know, in, in, in places where anthropologically you, there was not a lot of contact yeah. between the two groups. You know, what what is it about that? So when you take that and you can add magic to that, that's a really fascinating thing. Um, so I, I love, you know, I think that stories about when, you know, I think God's war conflicts are really interesting. Um, I love the Feywild. Oh. mm -hmm. Um, I love prophecy and divination Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but also I like going down to a smaller level and really looking at who my, my characters are, who who, who my players are and who my characters are that I'm, I'm creating for, um, and what matters to them, what their backstory is, what the relationships are. And how can I press on those? Because any story will come out of, you know, conflict and putting those ideas in a pressure cooker. And I, I also love, love horror. <laughs> I'm a huge <laughs> horror nerd. Um it was a difficult genre to do
0: in, in Dungeons & Dragons because it's such a, in tabletop, because it's such a controlled, you have to have so much horror? control over things. Yeah, horror. horror. Um, at least I've yeah. I found because it's so hard to really control expectations, which you kind of need to make sure if one player doesn't find it scary, then he can ruin the whole thing.
1: Yeah, if you go take a look at the... Uh, it's a third edition book, I think. It was Heroes of Horror. Mm-hmm. It's, a, again, a James Wyatt uh, book. But there's... The beginning of it, I feel like, should be essential reading for anyone who's writing horror, whether it's in gaming or TV or plays, whatever your novels, anything, where there's really a, a deconstruction of the genre. Um. And I think the core of horror is what you don't see. Mm-hmm. But what you're never... It's the unknown. That's that's always going to be scarier. And if you can set things up where the players can project their own ideas onto it. And with horror, obviously, also that's a place that you... I cannot emphasize strongly enough how much safety tools are essential when you're doing those yeah. kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, but that's a place where you can... Really, let the players do a whole lot of the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. which is really interesting.
0: Yeah, and and it's incredibly rewarding <laughs> mm-hmm. as a, as a DM when you can scare the pants off your party, but also as a player, mm-hmm. it's fun uh, having that feeling getting to role play through while you're being able to role play as even as you're scared, it's incredibly fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is.
0: So I want to shift gears a little bit to some of the work you've done as an advocate within the community and you have done a lot of, um, you've spoken on this topic. Um, and you, as, as part of the, some of the official D and D events and panels and on your own, you know, in your own work on on, online and stuff. And that's inclusive tabletop, especially, Mm -hmm. um, disability advocacy within tabletop. And there's, you know, the discussion about representation is extremely being, you know, all over, you know, for every, you know, people who have historically not been represented, whether it be because of their, their race or their sexuality or their gender identity are getting, Mm -hmm. are speaking up Mm -hmm. and disability, you know, and between, you know, your work, your um, accessibility gaming sheet, the combat wheelchair, um you know there's there's been getting a good amount of attention um mm-hmm. and obviously you know again you know we were discussing some of the candle keep coverage you know polygon when they talked about your candle keep adventure that was what they focused on was the um the wheelchair accessibility which we'll talk to a little talk about again in a little bit and yet it feels like it's not quite as discussed i don't know if that's something that it's obviously more than it used to be, but it still feels like when someone comes out to talk about disability in the yeah. tabletop, everyone goes, whoa, we never thought about that. And it seems like every time that happens, even though, you know, yeah. I know you and I know that people have been talking about that accessibility for for years now.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Elsa Hunesson did a Dragon Magazine article about accessibility very Early in the digital format uh, of Dragon, um, you know, years and years ago, and 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 she's still she's still advocating. She was on on the panel with me. Um, she's a brilliant fantasy author. She's a Nebula Award-winning fantasy author. Um, uh, she is also deafblind, um, and uh, she's an incredible creator. And and um, so I, I am I am certainly not the first person to be raising this issue. Um, but yeah, when, when you talk about disability, there are a few things that I think are important to note. Uh, in the US, and I believe numbers are pretty comparable in uh, many other countries, uh, we have uh, 26% of our population is disabled, which makes uh, makes the disabled community the largest minority in the country. Um, When you look at representation in terms of something like television, 95% of characters on TV are non-disabled. Then if you zoom in on that 5%, 98% of those are played by non-disabled actors. So we have very, very little uh, authentic disabled representation. Um, In writers rooms, the numbers are so small that it's essentially unmeasurable. A lot of this comes from the historical precedent, which is, uh, you know, for centuries and continuing into the present day, um, people were institutionalized. There were things called ugly laws, which meant that people who were deemed to be quote unquote ugly, which usually correlated to disabled, um, were not allowed to be in public. Um, And these were on the books until extraordinarily recently, um, like within the last couple of years. you were dealing with issues of forced sterilization, um, all sorts of um, just systemic abuses and disenfranchisement. Um, To this day, uh, there is not marriage equality in the disabled community because in the US, uh, getting married means that uh, people who rely on SSI, will uh, it'll be too much money for them to continue having their benefits if they have a shared household income. Um, they're also not allowed to share food I- in their fridge uh, because that is considered a gift. If someone, if they have a roommate and they eat food that belongs to the roommate, uh, it is considered a gift. It can get them kicked off of SSI. Oh, wow. So these are things, t- and SSI is not, uh, it's not making anyone rich. Yeah. It's about $700 a month. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that's, a big piece of why this advocacy is really important and and raising this awareness is really important. Uh Um, I studied disability studies in college as well. Um, And um, I feel very strongly about this clearly um, in terms of uh, raising awareness because we think of disability as so binary. We think of if a person is blind, they are either, you are either sighted or you are 100% blind. You have no vision whatsoever. It's, you know, all, all black, you know, Um, The reality is 90% of people who are blind have some vision. Um, People don't know people like me. I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user. I have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a collagen disorder. Uh, It affects all of my joints. It affects my internal systems. Um, I have a number of other associated issues um, as well. But So I, I sometimes walk, I sometimes use a cane, and I sometimes use a wheelchair. People don't know that there are people who use wheelchairs who aren't paralyzed who can stand up, who can walk. Um, And so there's abuse that happens. I have a friend whose car was keyed with the word faker. Um, Yeah, because she was parked in a disabled spot and walked to go run her errand uh, because she could that day. Um, Needless to say, she was not faking. Um, These are things that don't get discussed. So I think whenever someone talks about them and talks about them vocally, um, people are struck by this um, because we relegate disability to either, oh my gosh, it's so inspiring, or you know, pity or fear. You think about how wheelchairs are used in horror um, it becomes an immediate signifier that a place is scary. If you see an abandoned wheelchair, um, you think about institutions, hospitals. What's scary about them are not actually the patients, because the, it's much more likely that the patients are being abused by the doctors than it is, or the, or the caregivers. Um, you know, than, than it is the other way around. Um, it it's it's horrifying. Um, In that way, and and so I think when you hear people who are have the same interests as you, or are active in the community, or don't fit the stereotypes that people are used to about disability um, and what disabled people can and can't do, it's it's pretty startling for Mm. a
0: lot of people. I I think part of it is. Um. Like you said, I think some people really are surprised when people who are disabled are speaking up because they tend to fit them into those. They can't, you know, they they're either you know inspirational, so they're saying oh they, they're mm-hmm. going to be they can power past their disability because they're inspiring. Or um, I think there's there's an infantilization that happens at too. Hundred um, percent, and that's part of the pity thing you mentioned. Where I think people, so they're kind of also they're like oh well they're. They're asking for all this stuff, you know, they're, but how, you know, how can they do that? You know, they're, they're used to thinking about them as like lesser than to be pitied. So when they're talking and they're being confident and, and, and being the people they are saying, Hey, we're not mm-hmm. this. People still are kind of like, Oh, well the, the, you know, this, how they're doing that. I didn't know they could do that.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um. And also just people don't, think of certain things as disabilities. So for example, many, 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 many people you know use an assistive device daily, regularly, and I I, I would be willing to bet that you don't bat an eye at it uh, because they wear glasses. Glasses are an assistive device the same way that a wheelchair is an assistive device. It is a tool that allows your life to be easier in terms of how you maneuver through the world. And you know, people don't have a problem with glasses in fantasy. Usually, you see lots of people with monocles or pince-nez, or um, you know, people have never had a problem with pirates being multiple amputees or having one eye. Um, they generally don't have a problem with villains being disabled. Um, that's a that's an ongoing trope that that happens a lot um you know facial uh facial difference or limb difference or and that being the root of their villainy they're so angry at the world that they're disabled that you know they must they must kill everyone you know yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and, and it, it, it's just it's pretty absurd um
0: you can really count on one hand the prom- the amount of prominent disabled like superheroes there are. Mm -hmm. you know there's like
1: and even (laughs) then the the idea of of uh, a disabled person becoming super powered because of their disability is is also a trope yeah you know um like there's a people have a very complicated relationship with with someone like daredevil who's an awesome character but also it's that's not how it, it works and and you don't have to be I mean, we're talking specifically in the context of the fantasy world. So often you are going to have abilities that are not standard. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the 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 superpowered disabled person because of their disability is also a a thing that's frequently, yeah, uh, and that's
0: and that's something frequently out there. something that you like that, like you just mentioned, um, something that people bring up. It's not a good argument, but i'm when it comes to people who mention this, and I, I see this in the comments when the you know when your stuff about your adventure got published or when the wheel the mm-hmm. combat wheelchair was published and then went on critical role and all these things is the comments I kept seeing was or whenever it comes up was well this is a fantasy world this is d and d specifically is an escapist thing like people want to it's an it's an escapist fantasy where you go and you can be a better, you can be a better person than you are. So why would I want to, why would you want to represent a disability? Uh, You know, why would you want to be represented? Like if you're in a wheelchair, wouldn't you want to have a character who's not in a wheelchair because you're wanting to be, have the fantasy of that?
1: So that has, uh, that, that, that initially that, that argument uh, stems from something we call the medical model of disability, which is kind of historically and the, the, idea that uh, a disability is something that is wrong with a person that needs to be fixed. Um, Most of the disabled community um, works within something called the social model, which is when you have a wide variety of people, you're going to have a wide variety of heights, you're going to have a wide variety of hair colors, eye colors, skin colors, body shapes. Um, Disability is normal variance in human bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is that we have the capacity to make a society that is much more accessible Mm -hmm. than it is. The problem is not that a certain person can't do a job. The problem is that they can't get in the door to their job because there are stairs. Um, And that people aren't willing to, as a society, change that. You know, that I, I can't go to a restaurant with friends on a day I'm in my wheelchair because the wheelchair elevator is being used as bonus storage mm. for whatever they have to store there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that we can't make essential accommodations for people um, when these are things that as a society we can we can do. Mm-hmm. These are not big deals. So So for a lot of us, we don't see our disability as a bad thing. Um, it's just part of who we are. And, and many people, if you ask them, could if you could take a pill tomorrow and not be disabled, what would you do? And a lot of people would, would say, Nah, I wouldn't take it. I'm I'm cool with who I am. I my body does I I'm fond of myself <laughs> the way I am. Yeah. Um so this idea that that y- you need to idealize yourself in fantasy by becoming non-disabled um is is a is flawed logic to begin with. You know. But also I think people don't think about I think people think about fantasy through i mean obviously you think about it through the lens of reality but they don't ever think about the actual ideas of the world through the lens of that world um so they don't think about the fact that if you are a human and you go to a uh, a dwarf city everything is going to be very low for you. You're going to be hitting your head. Your back is going to hurt because you're going to have to constantly bend over because things are lower down to the ground and not sized for you. You may not be able to see there because things are, It might be low light. Um, you're working underground. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that are going to be very different, and I think those are things that people don't often talk about. So when when people started talking about stairs you know it's like well stairs for what size of creature is it for humans is it for uh halflings is it for giants cuz steps for giants are going to be tough to to navigate for anybody who is of a, of a of a medium humanoid size um or smaller so i think there's there's this loss of there, there's this lack of uh perspective in terms of, of a relativistic sense for the world itself. Um, people also don't think about that, you know, I got a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, why would a dungeon ever have ramps? First of all, it's in your PHB. If you look in your PHB, there's a section talking about a Yuan-Ti temple that has ramps instead of stairs. Uh, I'm sorry, n- not your PHB, the DM's guide. Um, talks about designing dungeons for the, the creatures that are there. Secondly, why does a society that is coming out of our imaginations have to have our real-world biases? You know, you look at something like Schitt's Creek, where there was a conscious decision made that homophobia just wasn't going to exist there. Why can't you do the same thing with ableism? You know, when you're living in a world that is, is constantly ravaged by monsters, you would think it would make a whole lot more sense to make the world accessible and develop better you know assistive technology and build some ramps than it would be to constantly have to track down high-level clerics to come in and perform spells which not all of all disabilities can be you know quote unquote healed with those to begin with because you know it it only can uh return things that were there to begin with but um but also like the cost of those is so exorbitant when you're looking at making 30 gold a year if you're a standard person in the world and those spells cost 100 100 gold per usage plus you know plus plus service cost um it's that's absolutely out of reach for for many, 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 many people. It it just makes a whole lot more sense to to build an accessible world. Yeah.
0: Like you said, I mean, if anything, it, it, it it it, it makes more sense in a world where all this stuff is possible to be able to make it more accessible because people are already having to make things accessible to all kinds of different things, whether they're snake people or giants or all that stuff.
1: Um. yeah and if, if you're talking about playing escapist fantasy and not every disabled person will want to play a disabled character in that world that's fine but there are a couple pieces of this one think about how many people play characters who are absolutely traumatized you know everyone is an orphan where their city was destroyed by you know that's intentionally electing to put that in in your escapist fantasy you're not choosing to have like a perfect happy childhood and a really healthy life and stable family and, you know, lovely children that you have there with your partner. Like, you're choosing to have this extremely traumatic damaged creature as your avatar in that world. Um, So even if you're thinking about disability through a medical model lens, I think there's a case to be made there. Um, But also... Escapism can involve putting a version of yourself into a world. And currently, there aren't a lot of ways for someone like me to do that. Whereas someone who is a, you know, is male and white and straight, you know, those are all Represented um and for marginalized people, when we put ourselves into those stories, often we are accused of politicizing it, but really, we're just putting ourselves in the same way someone else mm-hmm. did
0: I think that's a really good way to look at it. actually I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it because you know you you don't ask there's so many people so many people who are outside of the default like. You, like, I'm white and a man, and I'm so you know I I I'm fairly 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 well represented. But as a bisexual man, you know, I wouldn't like it if someone said, well, "Why don't you just make a character who's straight?" Because then no one would be, um, no one no one, there'd be no issue with that. There'd be no like bi bi-phobia, or like why don't you make a, you know the, you know the, the these different things you know you mm-hmm. wouldn't ask someone to do that? Why you know why don't you just make your character white, you know, if you don't want to deal with that kind of thing? Well, because, like you said, you want to be in the story as who you are, not as someone else who you don't feel connected to.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's not saying necessarily that we all play avatars of ourselves <laughs> yeah, that yeah. are perfect analogs. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have a, I probably, my balance skews to characters, more characters who are non-disabled, honestly, because if you look at the number of characters I've played and, you know, but, um, but I think having the option there, you know, and no one, no one is forcing anyone to put this into their games. This is, this is the the, the D&D enforcement squad isn't going to show up at your door if you choose not to have disabled characters in your game or have accessible locations in your game, um, but, you know, there might be that person at your table who has not chosen to disclose their disability who suddenly goes, oh, well, you know, made the right choice by not disclosing <laughs> um, and continues to feel um, uncomfortable for that reason or sometimes physically uncomfortable, you know, Um because they're not comfortable saying, hey, you know, I, I need to be able to have a break every so often because I have this thing that makes my back hurt or my, you know, I have to go take meds or whatever it is. Um, I think showing an inclusive world, and that, that applies to NPCs too, and it's it's not tokenizing. It's not making that the exclusive identity of a person. You know, a person's personality is not wheelchair user. <laughs> a person's personality is, you know, rye. Cunning, charming—you know, whatever, whatever adjectives you want to throw in there, and descriptors you want to throw in there, uh, and whatever relationships they have, and all of that—it's—it's it's, people are mu- multi-dimensional, whether they are disabled or non-disabled.
0: Okay, so um, I, let's say I want to finally get to the the top of the hour, the the big thing, the big news—that is the, the candle, key, your candle keep adventure. Yes. Which we've gotten a little, you know, we've we've been lucky to have a little bit of some information on. Um, mm-hmm. We know it's titled The uh, Canopic Being. You've um, worked with the D&D before in, in an official capacity. Um, but I'm wondering what it was like coming on board as a writer writing for an official, after being a fan for so long and working with them as, uh, you know, what was it like coming on board as a writer contributing to a book that's coming out?
1: I mean, this has been incredible. It's been, it's so, it's so surreal. Um, I still don't know how to process it. It it does not feel real. Um, every time I would get an email, uh, when, when Chris, Chris Perkins first emailed me about this, I really, my, my first reaction was, Oh, I'm sorry. you, You accidentally emailed me on this thing. Uh, You, you, you know, I think you meant it for (laughs) someone else. Um, and then I, I kind of sat for a minute before doing anything and then went, oh no, this is, this must be that thing that this is a thing. Uh, Okay. Okay. This is a thing. Um, no, it it was, um, it was incredible. I mean, you're, you're working with your heroes, um, (laughs) you're you're getting to to write these words that uh, like to think about people having the experience that I had with D&D with something that I that my name is in is, is just uh so surreal. It I mean I think yeah the the, the best way to describe it is surreal. I, <laughs> clearly I can't be articulate about this. Oh yeah. Um
0: No one I've asked that question has, um, so far been able to really tell me exactly, this is how I felt about it. This is how I currently feel about it. It's all been, I mean, people, I think, yeah. every, it seems like a lot of people are still all the people, contributors I've spoken to have all been still kind of mind boggled by it.
1: Yeah. It's overwhelming. It's, um, it feels very surreal. Um, it was hard. I'm not. I'm not going to lie and say it was easy. I, I certainly felt this pressure of, you know, forty years of, of history pressing down on me and, and wanting to create something that that does justice to that legacy. Because I'm a lore nerd, and <laughs> you know, I love. I love this game, and I love the the, the books that have come before <laughs> um and um you know while at the same time recognizing that this is an opportunity to try something new and to to bring something new to it and this is what we we're talking about before with what can you bring to it that is unique to your to your experiences and to your um narrative so i i think yeah just just trying to settle into that was tough. Yeah. Uh because it was it was intimidating.
0: <laughs> it was very intimidating. Yeah. The pressure I can not I mean I can't imagine the, the pressure of it um as as a writer. Yeah.
1: Well, and then throw in that we were it was right a lot of it was right at the beginning of lockdown. Um so it was I went into lockdown a little bit before uh a lot of people because of my medical stuff and um so trying to adjust to working from home and not being able to go to a coffee shop and you know work in the ways that I usually tend to write where I can block out distractions um, and having the the fear and stress of okay well how do we do food and right now the stores are all out of everything and I can't go grocery shopping and how do I make this you know all of this stuff was it was very it was a really intense time to be trying to create mm. too. Um.
0: Yeah, I'm. I've. That's so, something that I. Uh, um. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think. I think. I feel like everybody who I know who's a creator in some capacity really has been struggling with creativity oh, through,
0: yeah. through all of this. But. <laughs> yep. I was finishing up my yeah, master's thesis. Yeah, but at that
1: point, especially. It, <laughs> oh my easy. gosh. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, um. Yeah, but so I think that that was a big, uh, you know that that. To add that onto the, the just being absolutely <sighs> overwhelmed and intimidated by um, excitement and legacy and wanting to create something great and tell a really good story and... Then trying to go think about, okay, well, any group of people could be playing this, any party composition. I cannot write this the way that I would normally DM mm-hmm. a story. I can't do this in the format that I'm used to creating. I can't create thinking for a, like, good and neutral aligned group. There's It's entirely possible that an all evil group of clerics, only clerics, will show up who have tons of magic items or who have no magic items, you know, uh, and how are they? How would they approach this? Is there a way for them to approach this? Um, so having to think about it in permutations that I had never needed to explore before was was fascinating. Yeah.
0: And you mentioned that you've, you 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 do, you are thinking of that past and being a lore nerd, which is you know respectable. Um, mm-hmm. And it, that that seems that seems definitely seems to come out just from what I've known because you there's a there's a joke um i that i'm sure you've seen when it comes to the setting of of the released adventures from D&D where there's th- there's not really the forgotten realms there's the remembered realms which is the sword coast and then there's everything else and you set it in a completely different place you've set it in tashluda tashluda mm-hmm. i don't <laughs> um yes
1: i have Fantasy tashluda
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's in tashalar
0: that is, it's farther, very far away from where we've had our other things set. Yes, and I. it I, is east of Chult. Yeah. So. And was that conscious as you really want to get really far away from the quote unquote remembered realms?
1: 100%. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, it's really interesting because so much attention has been paid to the wheelchair stuff stuff the accessibility stuff about the dungeon and uh, you know these are the it's almost it's like the venn diagram is is a circle of (laughs) these that being people who are complaining about not getting to leave the sword coast and and i'm going yeah you missed the whole part of where that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. here um (laughs) (laughs) but yes i i i i wanted to go someplace we hadn't been and you know Tashluda hasn't been seen in a couple of editions either um and there's a lot uh, that's really interesting about Toshluta you know like like we were talking about earlier I, I love l- stories about liminality and tashluta is a very liminal place it's this this place that is the border between you know the jungles um, and cities um and it it's built into a volcano so it's living in this constant state of of is it is it okay is it dangerous <laughs> is it deadly yeah um but at the same time it's this like it's this really lovely temperate place uh that that has some some really fascinating things going on uh so yes there was there was certainly a conscious effort on my part to go let's find an interesting place to put this and and part of that has to do with some things that are in Tashluda, um but uh also, it, it kind of started when I was deciding where to set set this with with wanting to dig into a place that didn't have any lore. And the other day, I was on Forgotten Realms wiki and I saw my name on the Tashalar site and uh, the Tashalar page, and just that was that was another <laughs> very surreal moment. Yeah, being cited on
0: that. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it, it's 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 interesting because. Um, you know, I didn't know too much about Tashluda, and I'm curious how how it um, how it how it manifests.
1: The, the research was a bit of a beast, <laughs> um, because it hasn't been out and about in a very long time, and even prior to that, there was it was it was fairly limited. And you know, it's from older material, which has some stuff that is, you know. It, it, could use new eyes.
0: I think you, you get outside of the white um, European fantasy D D the older, there's some question. There's some things that,
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's certainly are things that, that I think are larger, um, discussions. So it, it's a fairly, you know, we're fairly narrowly focused in this because it is a short adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you get some, some fun flavor of, of Tashalar and kind of why it's a why it's a fun place and what 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 some unique stuff is there and and it opens up the possibility that players could go out and about um, and in fact with my adventure I <laughs> I basically send in my own extra credit assignment of, <laughs> of like here's my research this is what I like here's here's an extra couple hundred words on more Tashluda yeah. Um, here's more fun things that I described that I can't squeeze in. Um, but uh, yeah, it, going through the research was really interesting and, you know, finding things about it uh, that are unique about it. And I was excited to get to, to do that.
0: Yeah. And we're excited to obviously see it. And um, we've, we really touched on it. Like you said, the tension that you got was for the accessibility side of things. But yes, it sounds like, you know, that, you know, I think it's framed by, I think it's framed in, in D&D Beyond. It's framed in, uh, by Polygon, by the people writing about it as the like, oh, this is some like really Herculean like task that you were converting this dungeon to be accessible. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like, um, just talking to you about it, that it really just seems like that's just kind of how, you know, you're wanting to think about dungeons anyway. Like it doesn't seem like it, you, re- it you didn't really have to shift your brain at all to, to make this dungeon Is you just made a dungeon.
1: Yeah, it, I it, I really did. I mean, it, it, it takes zero effort on the part of the DM to put a ramp instead of a short staircase or to put an elevator or an elevating platform or some other form of a teleporting location or, a, a, you know, a dimension door, anything like that next to a larger staircase. they like, it's no effort whatsoever. If we get to imagine these things, we don't have to worry about the architectural costs and structural integrity of these buildings um, and whether or not they're going to, you know, make, uh, pass the code, which someone someone was talking about that there should be a, an an accessibility enforcement squad uh, ac- of of acquisitions Inc. <laughs> that runs around and does stuff, and I, I am here for that. That would be <laughs> that, that would be fun. I think so, um, but uh, yeah, like an assessment, a building assessors <laughs> squad, um, which I thought was hilarious. But uh, yeah, it, it it's such a minor thing mentally that it, it just uh, it's it's. I think people think it's this massive undertaking and, and in particularly in fantasy gaming, but also in life, it's really not that much effort to make something inclusive. Uh, it's a little bit more work sometimes, but just on every level, it, it's, there's creativity that can happen there. So, you know, Indiana Jones and the, the ball, the, the big stone, uh, vault doesn't happen without a ramp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not. It's not a threat that happens. Um, gelatinous cubes can't get around dungeons that don't have ramps. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about. You know, and, and people don't necessarily think about the inhabitants of their dungeon. They put things in, and they don't think about whether or not those creatures <laughs> could actually navigate that place. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, how many final so bosses it, are like? 3 stories tall in a dungeon that as you've been going has only been like a few like 6 or 10 feet up like right you
1: know? <laughs> and, and, and like there's so much attention to this and then at the same time I'm going yeah but some of the most famous monsters in D&D don't require floors at all. Why would a beholder care? <laughs> Dragons would would be up high in towers because of this, specifically because of this. Um so it's an underestimation of the creativity of dms to to think that this is a waste of of your thought process i think um, and also you know when you're building a place you have mining carts and 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 need to haul out rock and haul in whatever you're building um, it, it's just, it, it's so, it, it it makes sense. We have it in real world architecture dating back or predating ancient Egypt. Um, the first wheelchairs were in, you know, we, we, we mm-hmm. found stuff back to ancient China. Uh, and we know that they were in Egypt too. Like the, it's all throughout ancient history. So this is not, and none of this is new. Um, and none of it is Outrageous in any yeah.
0: way. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's in. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a, it's not a hard shift in mindset. People would just.
1: Yeah, and 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 you know I think Chris talked about my dungeon and de- sort of described it as being. Uh, a, a, he said the thing that he loved about it is it really feels like an old school dungeon crawl. Um, my adventure and, and that for me that was a huge compliment um, so if, I think that if people enjoy that type of, of adventure those kinds of stories that's I think that's what they'll get with mine I hope um, <laughs> and if you don't want to have it yeah. <laughs> have ramps and elevating platforms I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody a huge secret <laughs> you, d- you don't have to use them Mm mm-hmm just cross it out on the map it's 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 really it's a very simple process um yeah so I I think that's that it it became this huge thing and really it's it's to me it's no different than thinking about the lighting features of a dungeon it's a feature it's okay cool this dungeon has ramps wherever there are stairs and lifts wherever the stairs are too steep (laughs) moving on you know, mm-hmm. it, it also has torches yep. on the walls that allow for dim light in a 30 foot radius, whatever.
0: Yeah. You read that text out, you know, your players are going to be more preoccupied with whether there's a monster down the hallway or mm-hmm. at the bottom of, of, of the and dungeon. And there are and they're gonna all sorts of fun traps you, you can do with, dungeon.
1: like, there's just so <laughs> much creativity. I think there's, when you're talking about disability and accessibility devices in general, I think there's so much room for creativity, um, you know there was a real world spy who had a, who was an amputee and she was greatly feared because she would she would smuggle documents in her prosthetic leg she would smuggle <laughs> weapons she like it was and That's she fantastic. was a, mm-hmm. a, a, a heck of an assassin <laughs> um so those sorts of things are yeah. uh, there's so much room for for playing with that but also playing with the idea of like a village of flying creatures who have their home up in a treetop and are coming to the adventurers going, "Oh my gosh, you don't have wings. How do you get around? Like how do you Maybe they get prosthetic wings. Like there's just really neat stuff you can do if you start opening up to these ideas. And I think that's true with any sort of of expansion of what you think of as people populating your world. Um, Because when you don't include people in your world, I think a lot about uh, what Whoopi Goldberg said about um, why she took the job on Star Trek Next Generation. Um, She said, I wanted people to know that there were black people in the future. Mm -hmm. And for me, that really was a powerful statement because when we look at fantasy, when we look at sci-fi, if you don't show that people exist there, if you don't give them examples of, of people like them existing. Um, you basically are saying you don't belong in my idealization of what the world could be. It, you shouldn't exist yeah. there. It's a complete eradication and erasure of, of a group of people. And, and I think we can do better. I, I, <laughs> I I just, I believe in human beings a little bit more than that.
0: Absolutely should. And the community, you know, the community loves to talk about how inclusive and how welcoming it is or, you know, and that's, I mean, that's part of it. That's obvious to say, but, you know, that's a huge part of it. And it's a shame. It's it's really awful when that continues to be a thing for anybody. But, you know. And it's good, that the, but it's good that there are people, you know, like yourself, who are trying to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I look, I look forward to the day, and I don't know that it'll happen in my lifetime, but I, I would love for for the day when I put something like this out, and the thing we get to talk about is this is the Tashluda stuff, and the other stuff just isn't a big deal. Um, yeah. But until then, I'm gonna keep mm-hmm. talking about it because I really do want this to be a place where people know if they are disabled, if they have mental health issues, if they you know are are dealing with any of that stuff that they are they are just as much a part of this community and 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 are entitled to be part part of these worlds um the same way that anyone else is
0: um, well um I think we're we're getting about to our um to our time, and um, I is, is I wanted to ask if there's, you know, we're, we'll be looking forward to uh, the Canavic being. Um, but are, are there any other any other projects you've got coming up that we should we should keep an yes, eye out for? Yes, but for, I cannot say what they on. are
1: yet. <laughs> um, I will have announcements okay. happening in <laughs> March. Oh well, uh, they've. Announce that I'm going to be part of a Mage: The Ascension game. That's going to be really fun. Um, that's we don't we don't have okay. dates yet on that, but uh, yes, okay. look for some announcements happening in March. Um, there's a bunch of other really fun okay. things that I'm working on, and it's going to be it's going to be great. <laughs> NDAs for days. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> oh yeah, just pile of them. Uh, if we want, but if we want to keep up with, with those things as your NDAs expire and you can, and you, and you, and they get announced, where could we follow you to, to keep track of that?
1: Yes. So uh, I am on Twitter as Dreamwisp, D-R-E-A-M-W-I-S-P. That is also where you can find the accessibility and gaming resource guide. Uh, It's my pinned tweet. Um, That is a, a a list of, uh, I I don't even know how many links now um, that help you create a, Better accessibility in your games, in your writing, in your events, in your streaming, um, and more and more and more. Um, It also has a couple of essential resources on disability if you want to just do some one-on-one learning. Mm -hmm. Um, You can find me on Twitch. I stream as DreamWispGen. You can find me on Linktree as Linktree. uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash DreamWisp. Um, And that has all of my links to all of my socials and a bunch of my work. All right.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for, for coming on and thank you for, you know, being, you know, talking about, you know, the work you've been doing um, all around the tabletop and giving insights into your experience and and the way things are in, in, as in tabletop and being so candid about that.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thanks for, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to share that stuff. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And also I'm really excited about the Yes, yes. <laughs> it's going to be really yes, cool. Yes, and
0: yeah, that will um, be coming out on March 16th. You can pre-order it on D&D Beyond or uh, I think on some of your favorite uh, websites to, for that sort of thing or at your friendly local game store. There's a really cool uh, alternate cover for it you can get at brick-and-mortar stores.
1: It's beautiful. Oh, both covers are oh, gorgeous, yeah. but that halt cover—it's—it's it's amazing. Like I said, I'm into into fairy tales and and such, and it's just a, it looks like one. Um, yeah, but the the book has uh, quite a few. Uh, it's it's all short drop-in adventures, taking you all over the place. Um, there are 17 authors, and it's uh, I'm so excited. It's going to be fantastic. And we were overseen by Chris Perkins, so <laughs> you know, can't beat that. That was, that's, that's never gonna feel real. (laughs)